Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. John McDonald is the chief operating officer at Poshmark, a leading social commerce platform for the next generation of retailers and shoppers, where he manages product, data, and analytics and the marketplace operations and is responsible for marketplace, GMB growth, and profitability. John draws from a deep expertise in community and marketplace management. He developed at eight years at eBay in category management, trust and safety, and seller experience roles, as well as four years at Ning, where he led support and sales and then as general manager of the business. Earlier in his career, John focused on consumer marketing and product development at Procter & Gamble, Monsanto, the Monitor Company, and Evite. John has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BS from the University of California at Berkeley. So John, welcome to the Second of Command podcast. Happy to be here. I um, every time I see Harvard, I just start getting all nervous. I remember the first first business book I ever read was What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School. <laughs> and you got to go there. So, um, well, you didn't get to go there. You earned that spot. I couldn't spell Harvard when I was in college. Can you can you walk us through a little bit about what you pulled from that experience that you still use today? I think uh, probably the the best thing I got out of Harvard, and I think it's it's uh, it's you know a lot of business schools practice it now is is this very fast, you know, several times a day uh, case study method where you would be constantly exposed into kind of almost context switching and into, you know, different aspects of different companies and what situations they were in. And, and, you know, frankly, that's kind of what almost every day is, you know, it's uh, context switching, you know, seven or eight times a day and different kind of challenges of the business. And so I think, I think that that really sets you up well, um, mm you know, to be able to, to make judgments on a, on a very fast basis uh, in different business situations. So that's, that's probably the biggest takeaway. That's really cool. Um, before we dive in, because I've got a, a whole bunch of questions I already want to dive in with, but tell us a little bit about Poshmark so we know exactly kind of what the brand is and, and what you're doing. And it's weird because I actually saw a post about it just yesterday. Fantastic. Yeah. So as you, as you mentioned in, in my intro, uh, Poshmark is the leading social commerce platform for fashion. And Kind of what does that mean? I think first you need to step back a little bit. If you think about, you know, maybe the last 20, 30, 40 years in retail, um, you know, we, we, we really went from kind of that small shop on Main Street um, to large big box retailers. And then uh, really with the advent of e-commerce, um, you know, this, this phenomenal revolution in, in convenience and price and selection that's happened. And, and, you know, you think about Amazon, I shop Amazon, you know, probably on a weekly basis. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just fabulous, uh, you know, in, in terms of the selection you can get in terms of the pricing, the convenience, the, the delivery options. But what's kind of gotten lost in all that is, is the human element. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, and in particular, when you think about fashion, um, the human element of that is so important. It's that personal recommendation, the personal sizing, the, the personal, personal just affirmation um, that you are selecting style and looking good. And so really what Poshmark has done is, and I think a big part of our success is to bring that, that personal human interaction back into shopping. And, and so what does that mean? Um, 
Well, you know, Poshmark at its core is a, is a consumer to consumer marketplace. Um, so we have um, now over 7 million sellers um, that have listed well over 75 million listings. And they sell to a community of about 50 million users. So, um, you know, very, very large, very broad. Um, we're US, we just expanded in Canada, but primarily US based. Um, you know, the actual marketplace itself, we started off uh, mobile only, uh, an iPhone app, and then gradually added uh, web and Android to that. Wow. But what that led it to be really the focus all along on the actual kind of marketplace side of this is to make it as simple as possible for buyers and sellers. So we've innovated in shipping, tracking, taxes, even disputes that you have in a peer-to-peer platform. We've made that just very, uh, you know, very simple uh, all within the app, um, it's it's you know just all encompassing, um, and and the idea is we want to make make the mechanics of buying and selling so easy that it allows our buyers and sellers to focus on the social side of um, of the experience. And so, what does that mean? So, um, similar to social media, you know, and, and if you're on Pinterest or you're on Instagram, um, on Poshmark you follow people. We call them closets. You know, it's you follow people in their closets that you love. You engage with those people and you share content with them. You know, just very similar to 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 any other social platform. Hmm. But really, on Poshmark, though, that you're you're sharing content that is really forms the fabric of you know the the, the commerce interaction. So for a seller, um, you succeed by you know expressing your style, um, building a following, getting a lot of people on Poshmark to follow you. Wow, and then you're curating your items as well as other people's items to those followers and, you know, creating just this fabulous shopping experience. And in the process, as we say, when you, you lead with love, you lead with styling, you know, commerce is going to follow, you know, that the, the sales going to follow. So just to give you a sense of what this means in terms of metrics, um, currently um, well over 30 million uh, listings are curated or shared uh, with others every day. Um, we, we have kind of Snapchat or, or Facebook-like engagement metrics. So users visit seven to eight times a day um, and spend about 25 minutes a day in the app. So wow. it's an intense social experience. And through that social experience, you're both buying and selling. So it's, uh, it's, it's very integrated, you know, integrated social and commerce that just leads to this very intensely personal interaction. So is it, is it kind of a, I mean, in, in real layman's terms, is it kind of a mashup of, uh, Instagram, Pinterest, and eBay. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, I, I mean, we, we we sometimes hear it as is kind of that that way, but absolutely, um, you've got you've got the marketplace, but then this this very different way of of you know discovering fashion. Yeah, through people, through through what other people are kind of suggesting to to you, what other people that you admire their style have in their closet. So, um, yeah, so I. I think uh, there's there's very strong elements of Instagram in this, and you know Instagram has become a uh, you know very strong kind of center of social media for uh, fashion, and so um, absolutely interesting. Now you guys have made the news, or or um, somebody on my team mentioned somebody were in the news that you are expanding into home goods now as well. Is that true, or is it accurate there? Yeah. So so one of our uh, you know really exciting things we did this last year is uh, you know we it's kind of interesting. Um, we, we have something called, we called it posh markets. Um, so one of our challenges is, 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 you know, when you have a, an app, it's, it's such limited space. And so as you add 
uh, bring in different types of people. So as we brought, we were primarily a women's fashion uh, uh, you know, uh, marketplace, and then we brought men into it. Um, how, do you, how do you allow people to have a little bit more segregated experiences? Um, and so we created this concept. It's almost like an app within an app. And, uh, and so we have a, a men's posh market. And what it, it, it also allowed us to do now is to start to branch out into areas that are very analogous. You know, uh, home furnishings have, has a strong fashion element to it. And so it allowed us to, uh, this summer, to add home furnishings. And, and it's been very successful. Um, now, you know, I think uh, one of the interesting things is we often take the, take the lead from our, uh, our uh, poshers, as we call them. And uh, there were a lot of home goods already being sold on the site. So, uh, so what we did is we formalized that and made it a, you know, a fantastic experience to buy and sell uh, home goods on the site. I, I love that you guys started with started at mobile and then have kind of expanded to the web from there. So when you were, um, and one of my kids, strangely enough, buys and sells high end shoes, like thousand dollar shoes, um, and flips them and you know wears them for two or three months and sells them for two hundred bucks more than he paid for them. Is that something that's happening on your site? And and how do you guys make your money? Yeah, so uh, two different questions. So yes, we uh, we actually have a kicks uh, uh, posh market. Uh, so absolutely, it's a it's a it's obviously a very uh, very big trend in fashion right now, um, sneakers. Um, but getting to your question of how we make money, so we uh, we have a very simple uh, fee structure. So we uh, we basically take twenty percent commission on every sale that happens on the platform, and. Uh, you know, included in that is, you know, is, is everything, um, it, for the, for the seller, it's payment, it's, it's, you know, shipping, it's, it's, uh, customer service, all of that's handled by us and it makes that experience incredibly easy and, uh, and, and then a very simple fee structure. We don't, there's no nickel and diming, nothing kind of that, you know, extra fees outside of that. That's really cool. All right, let's get into the the nuts and bolts of the business. So you've been there for over five years now. So I, I'm sure you've seen some some huge growth in the business. Can you walk us through what it was like in the early days, and and what was it that attracted you into um, to Poshmark in the early days? Yeah. So so when I when I start with the latter question, um, it was kind of interesting. I was at a uh, at a uh, a SaaS platform for building communities and. Uh, was looking around and and at the time I, I this was back in uh, 2012 2013 I, I think my my perception was is that innovation on e-commerce had kind of it kind of finished and uh, I know that sounds kind of uh, uh, you know kind of uh, a negative but but you know really Amazon had won and so I had wasn't actually even looking for a role in e-commerce I was looking more on the social side of things and I met uh, our, you know, had a, a friend refer me into Manish Chandra, our, our CEO. And uh, I, I got to be honest, we, we met for, I think, three hours. And, uh, you know, and then I came back about a week later and, and had another three hour meeting with him and I was sold. And, and I think uh, what, what really kind of sold me on it was, uh, you know, I think part of it is, is I, I was at eBay for about eight years. And if I, I, I kind of felt if I had left eBay and, and written, kind of a, you know, what would be the, the perfect kind of social uh, marketplace uh, when I left on the back of a napkin, it would have been exactly what Manish had built. And so I, I was sold. Um, and uh, so when I, when I joined, it was probably about 35 people, um, you know, uh, you know, orders of magnitude smaller in sales. Um, 
And I think, uh, what is, what has changed? I, you know, I think what hasn't changed, I think is our, our vision for the business and kind of the, the very kind of strong kind of framework or model for the business. Um, but I think certainly, uh, you know, our sophistication in, in particular, I think on the analytics side, you know, our understanding of how growth happens, how the marketplace, um, how people interact. Um, I, I feel almost every year we make some big breakthrough in how we understand how things operate and that ends up changing, you know, whether it's our advertising strategy or, you know, maybe, you know, some of the kind of key features that we build or, you know, just, just how we run the business. Um, I think probably that more than anything is, is kind of really just starting to build a, a deeper and deeper, more sophisticated understanding of the business. How about the team itself? Has that really scaled or have you been able to stay lean over the years? We stay pretty lean. Uh, so we've, we're about, you know, uh, 10 times that size now. Um, you know, you know, uh, I don't even know if we share that number, but you know, upwards of a, uh, a little bit over 400 people. Um, but you know, I think as a, as a business team, uh, very lean as an engineering team, you know, quite lean. And I think that allows us to be, uh, very focused. And I think, uh, have a lot of common knowledge of what everybody's doing. Um, so I think we're still at that size where, you know, it feels like we can be very nimble and, uh, and very focused. Mm. What, and what were the, how, roughly how many employees were there when you came in then about 40? Yeah, about 35, 40. Yeah. Okay. So, th so that's where the biggest part of the growth has, has had to have come then in terms of the complexity of the business for you, right? What it just wasn't as complex or was it complex and just smaller when you got there? I think when I, when I first joined, it was very much uh, kind of single thread, you might say, mm. uh, you know, we, we have a feature initiative and that was what everybody was uh, working on. Um, I think, you know, when you, when you have over 400 people, you know, you're clearly uh, executing on multiple lanes of, you know, in multiple large initiatives, you know, right now we're, you know, as, as we mentioned, we, we expanded into Canada at the same time we were adding a major category, um, you know, and there were a number of other facets of our business that we were, you know, working on at the same time. So managing, uh, you know, from an engineering, from a, a business, finance, finance, marketing side, uh, across multiple major initiatives, it, it definitely takes a bit more juggling. For sure. Now I'm Canadian as well. So I, um, I kind of appreciate the fact that you came into Canada, but I also at the same time kind of understand why, like, why would you bother with Canada when it's smaller than California? Well, I, I, uh, yeah, I think some Canadians might, uh, <laughs> but no, it's, it, uh, I think it was a natural place for us to uh, take a first step, uh, internationally. Uh, you know, you had uh, similar payment systems, similar mm -hmm. shipping, uh, we already had some brand awareness in Canada, um, you know, similar time zones, uh, you know, in terms of just, you know, infrastructure, you don't, you know, you don't have a big geographical distance to get any kind of latency in your back end. You know, there's just a lot of reasons why it was, uh, it was a, it was a great first step. And I think for us, it was, uh, it, we built a lot of confidence on your know, ability to expand internationally from it. So. That's interesting. So yeah, I, I remember when I was building a company years ago called 1-800-GOT-JUNK and we were opening up in Australia and it was our first test market after doing Canada and the US. And we kind of felt like if we failed in Australia, nobody would, would know, but you guys are, are big enough that you can't fail. So have there been any struggles in, in starting up in Canada and what do you think you've learned from that experience? Uh, 
we've actually, it's, 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 I, I would actually probably flip it the other way. It's, it's gone better than we expected. Mm. Uh, we expected some stumbles more from a growth perspective. I think, uh, I think probably, uh, you know, the areas that uh, maybe that we, we are learning from are, Probably some more the more the the, the basic operational aspects, um, banking. <laughs> uh, you know, just uh, you know, certainly going into a different tax regime. Uh, right. Uh, you know, dealing with a different postal carrier. Uh, and, you know, with its own idiosyncrasies. So I actually think it, probably we expected on the uh, more on the advertising and the more product side, we'd have more issues and that's gone very smoothly. It's probably more the, you know, the pure operational, the local operational aspects um, that, that, you know, maybe we didn't account, you know, or kind of foresee as much. I think your timing on coming into Canada is great because Canada is finally starting to catch up with the U S like you mentioned, you know, buying on Amazon and a weekly basis. I've been saying for a number of years now, if you can't get it on Amazon, it's not worth having. But in Canada, we hadn't really caught up to that yet. I, I live in two cities. I go back and forth between Scottsdale and uh, Vancouver, Canada. And in Vancouver, I might order off Amazon once a week, but in the US, it seems like it's daily. But we're, we're catching up. So I think your timing's really good in Canada. What's your, um, what's your leadership team look like and how do you interact with the leadership team? Yeah, so uh, we... Um from a lead leadership team perspective, we're, we're mostly still functional. Uh, we have a, a CTO, an SVP of engineering, and then uh, several uh, uh, technical VPs that report up to them. We, uh, you know, we have a, a CFO and a VP of finance. We have uh, uh, recently added a, a GC. Um, we have a, a CMO with two VPs under on the marketing side. And then uh, we just started to get a little bit matrixed, you know, as we start to expand both internationally and, and category wise, we, we have a uh, SVP of new markets and, and then starting to work on the international structure. So, uh, and then, Oh, sorry, I, I missed out on kind of analytics and, and, and on the operation side, we have a couple of uh, uh, VPs there. Um, but uh, so I think in terms of interaction, uh, a lot of my role or, you know, major part of my role is uh, is really around the planning side and, and supporting, you know, the, the team in terms of how we prioritize both uh, kind of near term and now looking a little bit longer term, um, how we both, you know, prioritize and then resource both on the people side, but the, you know, engineering and development side as well, um, you know, to, to support you know, kind of have a, have a roadmap and, and support, you know, the executives in, in, in executing. Um, and then I, I directly manage uh, several pieces of the business as well. So I have both a, my CEO role is both facilitating and planning, but also uh, directly managing uh, product analytics and then what we call marketplace operations oh, and, and Canada as well. Yeah, you guys have got a huge, huge scope to actually to oversee. So I want to get into some of your meeting rhythms that you have and, and how you, um, how you got to kind of stay on the same page, but I'm also really curious on the politics side is how, what have you had to do to avoid company politics or, or kind of prevent the silos from occurring, you know, going from, from 40 employees to 400 in, in five years is pretty rapid growth. How have you guys had to navigate through that? Yeah, we've been very fortunate. I, I, 
I think it starts from a, a values perspective and, uh, you know, who you hire and, and making sure everybody, uh, you know, kind of shares the same set of values. And I, and I think foremost among that is, is kind of respect for each other. And I know that that sounds kind of trite, but, uh, you know, I, I, uh, our CEO and our founding team, um, you know, th- the three co-founders, um, all of them have, I think, a, a very strong kind of shared set of values. And, and I, I think one of the things that I've, I've learned with Poshmark that I, I don't think I ever really recognized as much in the other startups and larger companies I've been with is how much the CEO and the founding team, how much their values reflect on the whole company. On the whole mm-hmm. company. And uh, so I, I, I really think, you know, that the fact that we have avoided politics it has a lot to do with, that values. values. Yeah. And, and, and foremost among them, it's, it's respect for each other. And, uh, you know, I, it's not as if we don't have conflicts, but, um, but I think underlying it is respect. Um, I think another one is, is, is we've had a fairly clear, uh, shared vision of where the business is going. And, uh, um, you know, that, that might get more contentious in the future, but, but so far the, the, the path, you know, the six years I've been here, it's, it's been, you know, fairly clear where, we, where we're heading. Um, and I'd probably say the third thing is, is so far we've had a, a primarily a functionally based organization. And I think one of the things we're really trying to think through is as we, we have to bring in some type of matrixing as we, you know, we start to have now these separate lines of business. Um, how do we do that and not bring in politics? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I recognize it's something I'm, I'm, I'm very happy we've been able to avoid, but it, it's something I think we really have to actively work towards. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it totally does. And I, I don't want to dive in on all three, actually. So talk to us about the shared vision first, because that's your, normally where I kind of start off. If we don't know where we're going, any road will take us there. So what, how, how did you all stay on the same page with that shared vision? What systems or tools did you use to be able to do that? I think it starts, uh, I, I'm, I keep on coming back to our CEO. Um, I think it's, uh, uh, it's, it's been a successful vision of the business and what Poshmark is all about. And um, I can't say it's actually even formalized. It's, uh, but I think, uh, you know, it's, it's been something that's been articulated uh, verbally for, and very consistently uh, you know, over the, the past six years, but, uh, um, and, and we, we've stuck, stuck with it, but I, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I can, I can articulate more than, than I think we, we, as new employees come on, come on board, we, um, we have a quite a strong orientation program. Um, we, um, I would say the vast majority of employees are also, uh, uh, participants in the, in the platform. So our, you know, many of our, uh, and particularly even our support side, our community uh, team are, are very active buyers and sellers. Um, so I think the, the ability to participate in the product that you, um, that you build and manage mm, um, sure. as well. Uh, so I think we, uh, uh, I think another aspect of it is we have an extremely uh, active community and so we, we throw events uh, uh, around the country. Uh, we call them Posh Party Lives about, you know, twice a month in different cities. We, every year we have a, a get-together. We just had it about two weeks ago um, <clears throat> in Phoenix, which is, was called, is called Posh Fest, where we 
this last one we brought in about 1500 of our um, you know uh, you know very active poshers uh, to come in and, and you know basically learn from each other connect with each other so by by having all these events and kind of real world interactions with our community, I think it, it really gives you a very direct connection with what Poshmark is. So, right. so I, I, you know, it's not a, it's not a, a place where we have written down the, you know, the 10 laws of, uh, of Poshmark, but I think it's, it's through a lot of osmosis and, and participating in the community that, that I think um, people have a really a strong connection, um, you know, to who our customers are, who our Poshers are. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I wrote a book years ago called Vivid Vision. It's just a, a way to articulate the whole company vision. I was curious whether you're, you were in that same direction, but it sounds like it's more on the indoctrination and the culture and uh, the fact that so many of your employees are also users that it's just so clear on what you're building because everyone's a part of it, which is amazing. Right. On, the, on the core value side, um, are those, you know, so many companies just kind of have them articulated and they're on the wall, but no one really lives them and breathes them. It sounds like from the sea level down, it's just been a core part of the business. So how, how do you live them and do you recruit based on those core values? Do you fire people if they're breaking the core values? You know, what do you do to make sure that those core values are so strong in the company? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all of the above. Uh, so uh, it, it pretty simple. I'll, I'll just, we have four core values. Uh, <clears throat> put people first, grow together, spread the love and embrace our weirdness. And um, so really, uh, you know, very simple uh, uh, values. And, and the interesting thing I think that makes our values really, uh, really work is, is they're not only the values of our, uh, you know, of our employees, but also the values of our community. So, you know, for instance, uh, when um, our CEO gave his State of the Union address at, at our, at this posh fest that we had, um, you know, he, you know, basically went through our values and uh, in, in the presentation and, and it really kind of permeates, you know, throughout the community that it's all about, you know, putting people first, uh, you know, everybody in the community, it's about growing together. It's a hugely supportive uh, community, uh, very, I would say, uncompetitive. And, uh, and you know, and this idea that, uh, you know, you spread the love, so you lead with love, you're helping others, and out of that, you're going to grow. Um, and then lastly, you know, with fashion, uh, embracing your weirdness uh, really resonates quite a bit because it's about you're, you're preppy. You were telling me you're, uh, you know, you're stuck in the, I don't know which decade it is with preppy, but, but you know, <laughs> Early that's, 80s. That, that's, that's your style and, and that's your weirdness. And, and you can, so, uh, so what, what do we do with this? Um, so yes, we, we do, uh, actively have, uh, within our interview panels as we, we hire people, we have someone focusing on, uh, the values and, uh, in different ways, you know, asking and, and probing for these type of values. And, and I would say anytime I've kind of gone astray, I've, I've made a couple of mistakes over the years uh, and uh, you always regret it. Um, so um, I, I would probably say in the first, you know, six to nine months, really working with, a, you know, getting someone who might have some rough edges uh, with these values and, and uh, working with them. I, I have let go a couple of people. Um, that uh, that didn't fit with the values. So it it, it absolutely. I, I think everything you you said uh, are, we we use to to make sure that these are prevalent and uh, and and as well as our, our uh, you know it's it's part of our performance reviews. So you know our annual review process. We we also uh, call them out as part of that. 
Yeah, and I love like I've I've always had some pretty clear rules on core values, and you've nailed all of them. One is that you stick to four or five core values. You did that. Another one is keeping the short, easy to understand phrases that need no explanation and not single words. You did that. Third is to never try to make it into an acronym because then it's like is it more about the, is it you know it's about the acronym or the core values. You nailed that, and um, and then just you know live them from the top down, and you guys do that as well. So I think that's I think that more than anything, or or is a huge part of why your growth is what it is is because people are operating that way all the time. It's become part of your DNA. Yeah, no, it is. And it, and, and it's, I think the, the part that I, uh, I really found, uh, uh, felt very good as we, we've started to do as, as, you know, because we're bringing in, uh, you know, so many new people, um, we've had kind of a rotation where an executive will have lunch with a, a new cohort of employees and uh, this was a couple of months ago, I sat down and I was having lunch and I had them feed back to me kind of their first week or two and, and was it as expected. And, and what was fascinating was how strongly some of the values came back and, mm. and they were finding that resonant just in their first week in the company. And so it, 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 it makes you feel really good about the future of the company. Yes. That's really cool. That's amazing. Um, I've got a couple of advanced questions. We're actually starting to take questions from some of our listeners in advance of me doing the interviews. So I've got some questions of people that knew you were going to be on the podcast. Uh, the first one was, how does, how does the Poshmark platform assist the smallest sellers from being cannibalized by the largest sellers? Yeah, so I, you know, one of the terms we use uh, for Poshmark is that it uh, democratizes retail. And, uh, you know, it's a, that's a big phrase, but I, I, I like it because when I described earlier uh, how Poshmark works, uh, really the, the, the way you succeed on Poshmark is by uh, getting others to follow you. And then as your following on Poshmark uh, increases, your ability then to market, you know, to, to share and curate items to that, that group. That, that's it. That's, mm. That is the extent. And so... Um, what is involved with that? Well, you have to be a, an active participant on the platform. You've got to be following other people, um, sharing their items, you know, liking their items, uh, connecting them to other poshers. And when you altruistically are doing that, they're going to naturally do that to you. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's pretty crazy what it, you know, kind of that, that, you know, you're passing it forward almost in, in the community. Um, but what, what's kind of uh, democratic about that is, uh, you know, any high schooler, college student, you know, housewife, you know, entrepreneur, you know, retail owner, um, they start from the same spot. And it's basically their ability to connect with other people and have them follow, you know, them. And, and what we've had is these phenomenal success stories of uh, people with just a, a passion and a, a certain style. Um, you know, it could be kind of a crazy, um, and they've been phenomenally successful uh, on the platform. But, um, but because we don't have any, um, anything in the platform that, you know, you pay your way into, or, you know, as, as a, you know, as a large, you know, retailer or brand or seller, um, you know, really it's all about uh, your ability to connect with others. And, uh, you know, it's very democratic, very egalitarian. So for a small seller, um, even our, we do have a program called Posh Ambassadors, which is exactly um, you know what the name suggests. It's it's uh, we have a over time we've we built this program where um, um, people you know they're they're expected to reach out and help other poshers on the on the platform. 
And even that, the, the, the hurdle of number of sales is very low. The, the main way you earn into this program and become a posh ambassador is the amount of social activity you on the, on the platform. How many shares you've done, how many times you've helped other sellers get exposed. Um, wow. There's a certain threshold. So even, even in our kind of program, which you know, gives you a little bit extra exposure, it's not about number of sales. It's about the amount of sharing you do. That's really interesting. I love it. It's a big so, twist. So, so I, yeah. So I would say to answer your question is assisting small sellers. I, you know, the, the, the whole design of the system is meant to make it very egalitarian and, and very equal playing field. Um, yeah. So is, is your model meant for the person selling, you know, five items a year or 50 items a year or 500 items a year? Like what's the, is there a magic kind of number or target that you try to think about? Well, it's interesting because, uh, We've, uh, we, we don't. So I'd answer your question, no. Um, we, we have put a lot of focus into making it as simple as possible so, uh, so anybody could start and, and get selling and, and succeed. Um, but, you know, our, our largest sellers, and I, and I think we share this, this number, you know, are upwards of, um, you know, 500,000 to a million a year uh, on the platform. And wow. So, um, you know, over time, you're building a following, you're building, a, you know, your, your people love your style and love what you, you offer. And, uh, and some of these uh, sellers are creating their own brands. So they, um, you know, creating their own brand on Poshmark um, and quite successful at it. Uh, so, um, so then how, that's, that leads into the second question that I was asked in advance as well is how, how does Poshmark uh, keep the larger people from leaving to start their own platform? How do you kind of keep them in? And I, I I'm, guessing that it's just because the community and the tribe is so strong that they don't want to leave. You, you have, you have this amazing asset. Uh, so, so the answer is, is, is some of our largest sellers have gone up and started their own brick and mortars, you know, boutiques in their towns. Uh, you know, I, uh, a number of them sell as well, you know, on other platforms or, or through their own website. But once you built up a, a following of, you know, several hundred thousand followers on Poshmark or even yeah, why leave? Um, that's a, that's a phenomenal asset. That's a, yeah, exactly. Why leave? Um, so there's, uh, really I guess you would, you would almost liken it to, they've built a lot of retail traffic to that store. Why would they leave that location? Right? Correct. Absolutely. I think Makes sense. Yeah. So maybe I have a place I can sell my plaid pants then that I've been wearing in the preppy world forever. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably not. All right. The, um, some other questions related to the um, your organization, your org chart, and and thinking about moving from this functional based org chart to more of a matrix um, one. What, what thoughts? How do you start to think about that? And and when do you need to start thinking about that as an organization? I was talking to a client recently, and they had about 120 people, and they were trying to to go there. Is that too early, or or what tells you that you need to move to a matrix or bring in some of that? Yeah, so I, I think what really uh, has been uh, has struck us is the need, and it's it's been about a year to two years that we've we've really had this need is is uh, has really been around uh, category expansion um, and and specifically uh, bringing uh, men on the platform. Uh, you know the the I think without a dedicated uh, team or you know focus across functions, not just. Uh, you know, one person advocating for men on the platform. Um, it's, it's difficult to see, 
you know, growth in that category faster than the overall platform. You know, so what we've, what we've found is you, you get uh, success, but, but, you know, it's just growing. It's basically maintaining a percent of your overall sales um, to, to get that kind of acceleration. You need focus. And so, um, and, and not just within, you know, for instance, uh, Tracy Sun is our uh, SVP of new markets. Um, she certainly can have someone who's focused on, you know, or a whole, even a whole team focused on men. But unless we are uh, identifying dedicated resources within our growth team, you know, our, our advertising team, within our uh, product team, um, even within our community development team, and integrating those act, those activities across in a very focused and kind of clear, cohesive way against men, um, we we couldn't get acceleration in the men's business, and so that that's that's where we've had success with it. And I think it's a it's a it's a great you know example of kind of I think at at, at that point um, I think where you you have disparate pieces or segments of the business, um, I think it it almost becomes necessary, especially when you have such a you know, women, you know, women in the U.S., uh, women's fashion in the U.S. is such a large percentage of our business. It's, it's monolithic, you know, sure, it's, for sure. and so you really that I, I think to start getting some of these emerging pieces of the business accelerating, um, you know, it's, it's an area we had to. It's about focus. Yeah, it's interesting. I was in one of the uh, original Lululemon locations. Um, it's actually, I, we're from Vancouver where Lulu started and to walk into one of their locations now where they have an entire side of, well, it's really two stores. One store is all women, one store is all men. Um, but for the first 15 or so years, it was almost exclusively women with maybe like four pairs of guys shorts. Um, but they they did start to focus on that and brought in that demographic. Curious on on what you've done with your design and marketing side, have you, because most of your customers have been women, have you stayed, um, you know, with female designers and, and women copywriters and uh, women UX people, have you, have you gone that route just believing that they're so different and think different to, to actually hire based on that as well? We, we've, uh, I'd say just started uh, to do that. Um, so, so, uh, We've been we've been successful at accelerating the, the men's business without it, um, you know, by uh, you know taking a similar formula and and applying it on men. But I but I think the the feeling is is to continue going down that route. Um, we we had to find you know especially in the product marketing side, uh, merchandising side, um, we really had to find people who could bring a, a kind of a unique men's voice. It's not you know, not going too crazy far from our Poshmark, you know, sure. female voice, but, but how do we, how do we layer a, a men's, uh, you know, a, a male voice on, on merchandising as well as kind of our PR story um, as well. So, so we've had some success recently with that. We've uh, uh, for instance, we recently did a, a piece on uh, NFL uh, and NBA in terms of uh, uh, pro sports fashion. And, you know, as a way to, uh, you know, to reach out and, and make fashion on Poshmark relevant to men outside. Um, and, uh, but, you know, finding that way of connecting, but I, but I do think it takes uh, hiring specifically for that. So, yes. Yeah. So was I, was I correct then that your current marketing team had been on the, like female on, on your copywriting design UX side? Were you mostly? Yeah. It had. yeah. And recently we've, we've hired in to, to build that capability. I, re I read about something like that years ago, like 20 years ago in some book called Trends, where they just, they, they kind of gave that nudge. I was like, oh my God, it makes so much sense. Like, how could you ever have guys 
writing anything marketing or thinking because we just we're just different. I mean, especially when it's a female fashion brand or started that way. And we, we, we've also done, uh, uh, you know, springing in uh, and working with some celebrities. So we do occasionally do a, uh, a celebrity closet where we'll, they'll donate uh, the, the proceeds to a charity. And we've mm. done a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, sports figures recently with, with uh, you know, male sports figures. And that's, that's worked out well, too. That's really cool. I love it. All right. I'm thinking about your growth just in terms of a leader. So you've been with the company for five and a half years. How have you had to grow as a leader over the years? You know, I think um, I'd probably say uh, the biggest change for me has been um, probably twofold. Uh, one is is in terms of people management. Um, I think in terms of you know, I this has probably been the largest you know team, and and in particular, kind of a disparate set of teams that I've managed. Um, and I think learning how to manage, you know, managers of managers of people, um, I think has been, mm. um, you know, and, and has, has forced me and, and I, you know, I, I'm always amazed by people who have fabulous EQ. I would, I would give myself average uh, grades in that, that regards, but it's really forced me to really uh, listen, I think, a lot more, um, you know, really try and slow myself down on reacting too quickly. And, uh, you know, and just be much more thoughtful in terms of people and, and people structure, people organizational structure and how that influences people. So I'd, I'd probably say that that's one. Um, the second one is, is more just directly uh, kind of figuring out what COO means, which is really, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting and, and, and separating myself from wanting to dive in and drive things in the business and, and how do I become more of a you know, enabler and a facilitator more and more. And, and I, I got to be honest, that's, that's tough for me. Um, and, uh, but, but I'm, I'm gradually learning how to do it, um, to be, a, you know, be more of a resource for the other execs rather than, um, you know, my, my initial, in, you know, impulse is just to dive in and grab it. For <laughs> sure. So, uh, so that, that's been another area I think I've had to grow and I'm, I, I'd say I still need to keep growing at. Have you, um, did you ever come across the article that Harvard wrote or the Harvard Business Review wrote about 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO? No, no, I haven't. Great. Really, really, really. I'll send it to you afterwards. It's a fantastic piece. And um, they identified seven distinct types of chief operating officers. And it's just, that's one of the reasons why you're confused is they're, they play very, very different world, different roles. And um, I even started an organization about three years ago called the COO Alliance, just as a way to try to bring COOs together to network and, and learn from each other and share with each other. Because we tend to go to all these entrepreneur events, but we don't really fit in. You know, we, we, we have a different mindset. So final question, if I wanted to think back to, you know, you were maybe you're graduating Harvard or you were um, just finishing off your undergrad and you were kind of finishing off the University of Carol or California um, or UC Berkeley if you were to give yourself some advice as like a 22 year old advice that today, you know, to be true, but you wish you'd known at 22, what would, what advice would you go back and give yourself back then? Wow. That's a, that's a deep question. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I think, uh, I think probably one of the things I've learned most, you know, through, especially through my, my twenties and thirties and maybe even early forties was, uh, um, to bite your tongue, listen, 
be a much, much better listener, hmm. uh, much more adaptable, much more flexible. And, uh, you know, you come out of uh, college, you come, you know, and youth, you know, I, 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 I had a couple pretty hard stumbles in my career. And, uh, so I, I think to, to get to a point where you can, um, you know, you can lead, but lead in a way where you're listening and you're adapting and you're, you know, t- taking into account everybody around you. Uh, you know, I think, I, you know, I think uh, it took me a while to, you know, I would say even decades to get to uh, get, get to the point where I, I, I achieved that. So I, I think, you know, thinking about myself when I was graduating from college, I, I think uh, um, it takes a lot more than smarts to get ahead in the world. And yeah. uh, a big part of that is listening listening to people and uh, being considerate and respectful of people. So, yeah. I think, I think that's where the wisdom component starts to kick in, right? We just, you just need some years and decades under our belts before that part kicks in. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, and we run I, at a time. I, I, there's probably fortunate people out there that don't bang their head, but I, I bang my head a couple of times pretty bad. So yeah, but, uh, but you learn from it or I'm, you I'm, learn from it. I'm six four. I bang my head constantly. <laughs> John, thank you very much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. I really, really appreciate it. John McDonald, the Chief Operating Officer at Poshmark. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Cameron. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.